2: Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Centre.
0: is Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show.
3: An eerie quiet on the streets of Shanghai, China's largest city paralyzed with 25 million residents under lockdown. Two weeks in, officials are struggling to deliver groceries to residents who are stuck in their homes and some running out of food. I still have some...
4: Some cereals left, Uh, not much, but some fruits. I only have this
3: lemon. At night, frustrated residents calling out to their neighbors.
0: That sound that you guys played a lot on Monday of what it's like at night in Shanghai is something.
2: Chills you, doesn't it? Yeah. That guy's down to a lemon.
0: I don't want to eat a lemon. I'm so hungry, but I'm not eating a lemon. What's for dinner? Your half of the lemon. That's not much of a meal.
2: Can we go out and get groceries? Well, the men in the white suits will beat us down. In Mm -hmm. fact, if we even break the seal on our door, we'll be guilty of an offense against uh, the emperor or whatever
0: the hell. By the way, where's Fluffy? Oh, my. I got bad news about Fluffy.
2: Yeah, yikes, Disturbing. Ah So, uh, things are crazy ugly in China. That'll be interesting to track. And whether it weakens the hold of the Communist Party, uh, that'll take some doing. But in the United States, COVID policy, you may have noticed, has varied a great deal state to state. And indeed, uh, county by county, um, as, uh, as Jack to and town. I have discussed many times. Yeah,
0: I, I live in a town seven miles from the town where my son goes to school and it's a completely different world it's just attitudes it's not based on covid toll no it's culture it's
2: it, it's you know and if we did a uh, just a podcast these days it's still a live radio show which is fabulous we've both been fans of radio since we were little kids but who knows maybe someday we'll just do a rambling 4 hour podcast which seems to be hot um or whatever the next I'm-
0: the next thing might be a telepathy we'll just beam thoughts into your brains
2: Oh, boy, you don't want the th- all the thoughts in my brain. Trust me. Anyway, if indeed we did a rambling podcast, we could spend 10 minutes right now discussing the fact that human beings have a need for religious belief. I believe that. Uh, and a lot of people believe that's because there is a God or a binding force or a greater power or whatever you want to call it. Um, and in these increasingly unreligious times, many people adopted as their religion. I take COVID very seriously and I'm very afraid of it. That is almost entirely a knee jerk reaction to the fact that Trump was too cavalier about it. In the beginning, he was in that real estate salesman sort of way. But the fact that people adopted as their identity obsession with COVID to prove how much they hated Trump just shows how easily manipulated human beings are. Just crazy. Uh, but anyway, what I'm leading up to is a report we touched on earlier in the day, but I think it's so important it's worth repeating. Big report: a Trio of scientists out of the University of Chicago Department of Economics compared all fifty states and the District of Columbia and their policies during COVID, and examined the outcomes of three variables: health outcomes, mortality specifically, uh, economic performance throughout the pandemic, and the impact on education, lost days of education, kids not learning, that sort of thing. Um, and and this is such. I'm so glad they did this because as we talked angrily, as we you know discussed angrily during COVID leaders like the moron governor of California, where the show is based, for instance, and other places around the country, the only thing they ever talked about was COVID and COVID numbers. They didn't address depression, anxiety, cancer. They didn't address untreated heart ailments. They didn't address education, uh, kids despairing, child suicide. They pretended like the only issue was COVID, and that's the opposite of leadership. That is cowardice. So, anyway, these uh, University of Chicago economists took a look at all 50 states. Uh, Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. uh, Here are your best best outcomes uh number one by a significant distance uh, utah did great in the economy uh did very well in education eighth in COVID mortality as in eighth best adjusted for the state's population and uh, age and the prevalence of uh, obesity and diabetes i tried to combine obesity and diabetes into one word which is probably appropriate but um they're leading comorbidities, obviously. I wonder, so,
0: what what percentage of people only care about the COVID number, though? Well, you had the eighth mo- uh, fewest COVID deaths. You want to have the fewest COVID deaths. Um, and if, you, if kids don't learn to read or people are committing suicide or you lose your coffee shop, I, I don't care. I mean, what percentage of people are like that? I think a larger percentage than I would like.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure you're right on that. You know what? I was, I was noodling this through earlier, because if I'm going to be intellectually honest about this study, uh, I have to allow for the fact that people might say, well, nothing's as important as saving lives. I think you're a simpleton. I think you're unwise. Uh, you don't understand, you know, the way life really works. But then it, it occurred to me, well, wait a minute. There were countless deaths from overdoses, alcoholism, suicide and other deaths of despair so even if you are fixated on nothing but preserving human life which i understand again i think it's oversimplified but i i I grant you that that is legitimate even if that's your only concern you have to concede that the draconian lockdowns cost probably more lives than they saved so, like I say, you're unwise. You're you're just uh, you're uh, myopic. You're not even making an effort to look at the the totality of the thing. So, anyway, here are your states that did really, really well, from the very best to uh, the tenth best. And I'll tell you, the tenth best, Idaho, did significantly less well than number one, Utah. But it's Utah, Nebraska, Vermont, Montana, South Dakota, Florida. Uh oh. New Hampshire, Maine, Arkansas, and Idaho.
0: A lot of rural, small states there, but Florida is the outlier. Absolutely. And and got so much attention, obviously, media attention, uh, and and criticism for just being so cavalier about it all.
2: Right. Oh, We'll be digging into Florida in a moment or two. I will point out, If I had uh, more self-control, I was a better person. Maybe I wouldn't point this out. But I'm going to, of those 10 top performers, only one had a Democratic governor. One out of 10. Here are your 10 worst performers from the 10th worst to the very, very worst. Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Nevada, Maryland, Illinois, California, New Mexico, New York, D.C., and New Jersey miserable performances, especially that top, that bottom five or so. Of those, only one, Maryland had a Republican governor. I think that's significant. Now, the numbers behind the numbers. Top ten in the rankings are smaller states, with the notable exception of Florida, as Jack pointed out, which ranks sixth overall. Recall, I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal now, recall how the Sunshine State's decision to open itself relatively soon after the first lockdowns were derided as cruel and destructive. Governor Ron DeSantis was called governor death sentence. The study ranks, which as aspersions go, is fairly clever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's utterly unjustified, but it's funny. Anyway, study ranks Florida 28th in mortality, right in the middle of the pack, and a and right next to California, which was 27th, despite its far more stringent lockdowns and school closures, the tragedy of the loss of education in California, we could go off on that for an hour. Florida so ranks, Florida
0: had slightly better death outcome, but much slightly better, worse, slightly worse. Well, it's a tie. It's a statistical tie. But so Florida had a slightly worse death outcome, but better in all the other categories me and most people i know are perfectly okay with that trade off we we make those trade offs all the time that's what's always but been there so there wasn't weird. a trade off that's the point but we make those trade offs all the time and always have that's what's so weird about this whole thing We could eliminate traffic deaths if we made the speed limit 35, but we don't do that for all obvious reasons. We could eliminate drunk driving if we stopped everybody coming out of a bar, but we don't do that for all kinds of different reasons. But when it came to COVID, we decided, nope, we have one goal and nothing else matters.
2: Right, including things that made people die again. So Florida and California tied. In terms of mortality, Florida ranks third for the least education loss. Third place overall, almost no education loss, and thirteenth in economic performance. So in the top quadrant, certainly. So
0: I would make that trade any time. So would uh, should most people like if you're in my age group. So you got two parents that aren't in the danger age group, and the kids were never uh, in any danger. So yeah, rank school as a high priority. But uh, surrounded by people that don't agree.
2: Well, and and again, at the risk of belaboring the point, there wasn't a trade-off. Now, early on in the COVID, I understand people perceived that there was a trade-off. California, which instead of being third for educational loss, is forty-seventh. I'm sorry, forty-seventh overall because the shutdowns crushed the economy. California in fortieth place. In that measure, an in-person school, 50th place out of 51, including D.C., 50th place with no gain in mortality.
0: And this echoes that John, Johns Hopkins study that looked at cities and countries all around the world and determined that the shutdowns had no benefit.
2: Right, right. In other words, Florida did about average on mortality as other states, but it did far better in protecting its citizens from severe economic harm and protecting its children from lost schooling. The authors say, quote, the correlation between health and economy scores is essentially zero, which suggests that states with with, with that withdrew most from economic activity did not significantly improve health by doing so. Unfreaking believable. The bottom ten are dominated by states, and the District of Columbia that had the most stringent lockdowns were among the last to reopen schools. Their economies are, for the most part, still behind others in recovering from the pandemic. New York, whose governor, Andrew Cuomo, was celebrated as a COVID hero in the mainstream media for weeks. Excelsior! 49th, right, 49th place Albany's severe and overlong economic shutdown 40th in economics, had no payoff in mortality. They were in 47th place. New Jersey ranks last with a miserable performance across the board. Governor Phil Murphy didn't save lives, but he did savage the economy and punish students as he followed the teachers' union demands on school closures to rank 41st on education. Unbelievable. Another lesson that the Wall Street Journal uh, drew that the authors didn't in their paper that I think is worth uh, ending with Thank the U.S. Constitution for our federalist system of government. States were largely mm. able to implement their own policies. The outcomes would have been much, much worse had Washington imposed a single national policy uh, policies dictated by the federal bureaucracy.
4: Armstrong and Getty. Jack
3: Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarn you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, something I hope you'll find interesting or amusing about the autobiography I read of Miles Davis. Now, you don't need to know who Miles Davis was. He's dead. Uh, he was uh, maybe the greatest jazz figure in the history of uh, jazz music, trumpeter. But that doesn't really matter to this story. You've probably heard of You probably have heard of Charlie Bird Parker um, because he has kind of become a, a, a thing, a cross cultural thing. Clint Eastwood made a big movie about him. That sort of thing.
2: Get to the point. I have a great thing on
0: Branford Marcellus and his views on soup coming up. So stay with us. <laughs> Boy, did Miles Davis and Winford Mount Marcellus not get along. I didn't realize that. Probably. Sorry to hear that. I wouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> Apparently, Witten Marcellus criticized Miles' later years as not being jazz. And then they played together at some sort of festival, and and Winton walks in. And Miles says, "Oh, the jazz police are here. We better watch what we can play." And it oh, became a thing. <laughs> anyway, meow. So, so um, Charlie Bird Parker, if you remember the Clint Eastwood movie, horrible heroin addict. I mean, and also a musical genius. If I time machine, I still go with Jesus and Lincoln and a bunch of other things for a time machine. But on my list would be nineteen forty seven. Uh, Harlem getting to watch Charlie Bird Parker and uh, Dizzy Gillespie invent a new musical genre known as bop. And only super musical geniuses could do it. I mean, the way it's described in the book is just amazing to me. You can't even wrap your head mathematically around what they were doing (laughs) on the fly every single day. And Charlie Parker was an actual genius, like mathematical genius with a saxophone, but also a heroin addict starting at age like 21. And a horrible heroin addict. And he was Miles Davis's roommate for a lot of the time. And he was such a horrible heroin addict that, like, Miles Davis would go have to play a gig, and Charlie Parker would sell Miles' suit <laughs> to somebody on the street to get 20 bucks to buy some heroin. Oh. And Miles would come back, and, like, he's got no clothes to wear. <laughs> or one time he even sold his horn, so he couldn't play his horn because... It's just absolutely amazing. You'd wonder why you'd have friends like this. Well, you'd think you would heave his ass out at the first, you know, episode of that sort. Eventually, he did, but had such respect for him because he was only, like, 19... Um, uh, is a musical genius and just looked up to him so much, but got oh. abused over and over again. And a lot, and it was really interesting just about drugs and what drugs will do to people in relationships and and, and no matter what, drugs win in the end. Was, that, that, that angle of it was really fascinating. Well, yeah, you think about it for
2: yourself. I mean, maybe you're not into jazz or whatever. I, as a musician, I, I can relate to it closely enough, but what if you were roommates with one of the towering figures of your time? Maybe you've all time a a just mind-boggling genius whose name will be spoken of for decades if not centuries and he's a dick i mean (laughs) yeah or or you know a heroin addict or whatever how long do you how much patience do you what do you
0: uh, that'd be that's wild well he put up with it for several years so then they had one story and this gets a little coarse i'll try to give a general view of it Miles Davis goes and gets in a cab with Charlie Parker. They're headed somewhere. And Charlie Parker's got a girl with him. He's always got a girl with him. And this, and he's eating fried chicken. So oh, Charlie oh, Parker's boy. in the backseat of this cab eating fried chicken because apparently he just loved fried chicken and just couldn't stop eating. So do I. And he's got this woman in the back of the cab with Miles sitting right next to him, Miles Davis. Oh. And the woman is performing a sax act that Bill Clinton was familiar with. Good Lord. On Charlie Parker while he's eating the fried chicken. And Miles Number Davis, one. Number one. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. And they're driving across New York in terrible traffic, and it's a hot day, and Miles Davis is saying, you know, between the sound of you eating the chicken and her doing what she she's doing, and he describes it in very colorful terms, yeah. I can't hardly take this anymore. And he said, well, then roll down the window or get out of the cab if you don't like it. <laughs> I'm thinking, if
2: all that's happening to me and I got fried chicken and all... I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling like
1: I'm winning. That's quite a lifestyle. I'm good at life. (laughs) Armstrong and Getty.
0: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
2: Savings based on cost of Consumer cellular single line 1, 5,
1: and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
4: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
1: Now, from the Abraham Lincoln
2: Radio Studio. At the George Washington Broadcast Center, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The
1: Armstrong and Getty. These are bad guys. That is
2: especially true.
1: So bizarre. And so grotesque. Yup. Okay. That was unnecessarily frank, but
0: how can this show be on one hand sometimes so highbrow, yet be (laughs) what it is the rest of the time? Come on.
2: The Armstrong and Getty Show. So a brand new featurette. Very proud of the introduction. Credit to executive producer Mike Hanson for this. Michael, roll it, would you?
3: Well, guess what? Woke is a- led by woke. Well, woke. This phrase everybody's
4: been woke.
0: Somebody's woke, people need to take a nap. You know what woke means? It means you're a loser. Colleges are
3: woke. 101.
4: There you
0: go. That's good. Isn't that nice? That's a That's good, good production kind of, piece right there. Kind of cuts off abruptly at the end, though. Is, that was weird. Is your bit going li- to uh, live up to the intro? Because the intro is pretty good. Mmm...
2: Mm Good question. <laughs> we'll let the audience be the judge. Colleges are woke. One oh one. Came across a really interesting uh, article here that we'll post at Armstrong and Getty dot com. It's about a number of different aspects of the college uh, uh, situation right now, universities, etc. One of the things they mention is the uh, the elite universities are doing very very well. But then they mention that Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale collectively enroll more students from the top one percent of the income re- uh, income distribution, more from the top one percent than from the bottom sixty <laughs> percent.
0: That, that that that's always been so hilarious to me, as that uh, that continues to exist while that's the crowd that tends to lecture us about inequality and equity and all this crap. For sure. Yeah, yeah. The well, richest kids get into the fanciest colleges. Always been, always will be. Keeping in mind that since 1971, the price tag
2: for a four-year degree has increased at more than four times the rate of inflation. Mm -hmm. And we'll have one of the factors of that for you. Even Robert Reich, the lefty former Harvard professor, says, yeah, these uh, elite universities are mainly, quote, to educate children of the wealthy and upper middle class. Well, yeah, if it's uh, the 1%, it's the wealthy. Um, and, and it covers a lot of stuff. Again, I can't touch on all of it, but I wanted to jump to this. A survey taken in 2020 found that only a third of undergraduates see their education as advancing their career goals, and barely one Whoa. in five think their BA was worth the cost. Barely one in five. Wow combination of poor parents, decreasing rewards to education, distaste among many Americans for academia's overwhelmingly progressive agenda may further depress college attendance in the future. Uh, they go into some of the costs, which are indeed sky high. Uh, more troubling still, I like this, universities can get away with obscurantism. I wonder if I could get away with obscurantism. First, I'd have to figure out what it is. <laughs> Obscurantism? Yes, and this one you'll know. Enforced ideological conformity because of their enormous power over labor markets. They're no longer primarily about learning, as others have noted, but about providing the credential needed allegedly for a high-paying job. What they increasingly don't teach are skills useful in the workplace. One recent study of American college students found that more than one-third of students quote, did not demonstrate any significant improvement in learning in four years of college.
0: Now, employers that's,
2: report that, that recent graduates are short on critical thinking skills as well.
0: Now, that's amazing. Um, the question of whether or not college specifically prepared you for your job, was it supposed to be that way originally? Or how many people was that originally? Like you're specifically learning things that are going to help you with the job. But the idea that just in general, you haven't learned anything well, <laughs> while you were in college is just amazing.
2: Yeah, it, it is. It's shocking. And, you know, I I see college. It depends. I mean, if you're an engineer, you need to learn engineering. Sure. For a lot of us. Obviously. W- it, the point is learn as much as you possibly can about as many things as you possibly can. The cliche is to be well-rounded. I would suggest a uh, a better description would be to be a good citizen or a person that can handle a variety of circumstances and but, bring some knowledge. To
0: but it. kids aren't learning anything.
2: No. Well. And they, they will tell you so. That's the truly shocking part. they know they need the degree to maybe pursue a career, but barely one in five say it was worth it.
0: yeah, few people are 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 getting skills specific to their career, right. and then there's the other stuff you said, but they aren't getting that either, so Wow, but the
2: name of the feature at is college is woke One one, so let 's get to some of the woke stuff. You probably remember this November 9th 2016 we talked about this at at great length of time three black Oberlin college students it's a super expensive hoity-toity private school in Ohio three black Oberlin students walked into Gibson's bakery a small local family owned bakery and convenience store run by the Gibson family for more than 130 years. Also had a long-standing affiliation with the college, supplied students with breakfast fare. The son of the owner saw one of the students use a fake ID to purchase alcohol, then shoplift a bottle of wine, followed him outside, confronted them. The other two students began to hassle him loudly and aggressively. Cops showed up. All three ended up being arrested. The altercation put in motion a massive organized student protest with hundreds of people outside that gathered outside the bakery. Students prepared a one-page flyer that accused the bakery of having a history of racial profiling and discrimination. Wow. College administrators joined the students in handing out the flyer, in whipping up the students, in communicating with each other about how to make it more effective. And uh and and there's all sorts of behind the scenes stuff I don't have time to get into, but you might recall a couple of years ago, it wasn't long ago, that the jury said, Yeah, the college owes Gibson's Bakery eleven point one million dollars in compensatory damages and thirty three point two million in punitive damages, not to mention six point three million in attorney's fees. Well, juries sometimes get crazy, so the Oberlin College appealed it to the Ohio Court of Appeals, which handed down their long-awaited decision, unanimously saying, Oberlin, you are guilty, you are on the hook. So, a little justice there. And finally, just going to run through some numbers for you. A review of salary data for diversity, equity, and inclusion employees at major universities is un- They are looking at Michigan, Maryland, Virginia, Illinois, plus Virginia Tech. These institutions' top diversity employees earn salaries ranging from $330,000 to $430,000 a year, vastly eclipsing the average pay for the full-time tenured uh, professors. That's hilarious. So that they
0: can do what? (laughs) What are you doing?
2: Michigan devoted $85 million in 2016 to diversity issues over a five-year period. That's reasonable. Uh, $15 million in total compensation to DEI bureaucrats. The University of Michigan has the most DEI personnel. 163 individuals are involved wow. in diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: God, what do those individual hundred-some people do every day? When they show up at work, what is in your inbox? I can't even imagine.
2: Or, or lecture white people and scare them. Robert Sellers, Michigan's vice provost for equity and inclusion and chief diversity officer, highest paid DEI official that they came across, makes four hundred thirty one grand. According to data from the Chronicle of Higher Education, his contract is substantially more than the average salary of Michigan's full-time tenured professors, which sits around one hundred and seventy-four thousand. He makes four hundred and thirty-one.
0: And as we learned earlier in this thing that you did in hour three, um, most of your top schools are populated by the super wealthy. I mean, it's anything but egalitarian.
2: Right. Right. Uh, Georgina Dodge, vice president at the uh, Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Maryland, employs 71 DEI personnel, makes $358,000 a year. Average professor, 157. Uh, let's see. Mena Pratt-Clark, vice provost for inclusion and diversity at Virginia Tech, which has 83 DEI personnel, earns over $350,000 annual annually. Full-time professor is about 142, which isn't bad money at all. Kim, uh, I'm sorry, Kevin McDonald, VP for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Virginia, has 94 employees running around doing
0: something, makes Whoa.
2: 340k a year.
0: What are they doing all day every day? Yep, and uh, making sure, sh- sure all the professors are putting the pronouns in their emails and stuff like that. I guess.
2: And Sean C. Garrick, Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Illinois, my alma mater. Last time I was there, I found it drab, tired, and, and, and discouraging. Uh, he has 71 DEI employees, earns about $330,000 annually, which is uh, more than double what professors make. At the most woke you know, spot in the state of Illinois. Just crazy. It's a scam.
0: The whole- it's a racket university thing is so freaking broken
2: yeah it is it is it's uh it is terribly broken as our public schools um but you know that's another topic for another day
1: armstrong and getty
2: Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Sure our summer
4: depression. The Armstrong and Getty Show.
2: Derek Thompson, who's always an interesting uh, writer, has done the inevitable, incredibly long, but insightful piece in The Atlantic about what he sees as the four main forces contributing to rising rates of depression among young people. And I'd say if you are a parent of a, you know, somebody who loves a young person who's struggling with this sort of thing, uh, definitely worth a read. But here's the brief version. Here are the four main forces. Social media use. A decline in socialization. Part of that is COVID and idiotic, abusive COVID policies, if you ask me. Exposure to more bad news. Mm. And and modern parenting strategies. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What, are, what are those? Uh, we'll get to that uh, in order. The world is overwhelming, and an inescapably negative news cycle creates an atmosphere of existential gloom, not just for teens, but also for their moms and dads, he writes. The more overwhelming the world feels to parents, the more they may try to bubble wrap their kids with accommodations. That's the modern parenting part of it. Over time, this protective parenting style deprives children of the emotional resilience they need to handle the world's stresses. So let's deal with that one. That's uh, To me, that's the big kahuna. That's the whole, uh, I read once uh, a couple of years ago, and it's absolutely brilliant. You are not ready for anything close to adulthood unless you have gotten lost and found your way back twice. I thought, wow, what an insightful description of what, you know, survival skill acquisition is really like or should be like in childhood. Yeah, Because I know you and I had that experience,
0: yeah. right? and nobody does that with their kids now, and if you try to do it with your kids, somebody will call the police because <laughs> it seems so crazy, um, right. depending on the ages. I was just thinking, I definitely didn't do it during the COVID, which I hope had some impression on my kids. Like, we, we flew and went on a vacation a couple of times in empty planes to empty hotels to empty streets because everybody else was hunkered down because of COVID, and I hope that made some impression on them about... Oh, it Risk to. or evaluating risk or whatever.
2: Right. Well, you were talking earlier about a merchant you do business with who, who confessed to you that I haven't gone anywhere or done anything for two years. Imagine what her children are like. Yeah, yeah for instance. But anyway, getting back to the uh, part of the text of the article. Uh, So, the protective uh, parenting style deprives children of the emotional resilience they need to handle the world's stresses. Childhood becomes more insular. Time spent with friends, driving, dating, working summer jobs, all declining. Again, decline in spending time with friends, driving, dating, working, just getting out there on the decline. Uh, college pressures skyrocket. Outwardly, teens are growing up slower, but online they're growing up faster. Oh, wow, that's rough. The internet exposes teenagers not only to supportive friendships, but also to bullying, threats, despairing conversations about mental health, and a slurry of unsolvable global problems. A carnival of negativity which is a tone we try to avoid around
0: here, some days are more challenging than others. Wow, if we still, we used to have a guy who cut liners for us, like a little voice guy, we'd get that one done. A carnival of negativity. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Exactly. A carnival of negativity. Yeah, the world has always been overwhelming, but God, for almost all of human history, until a blink of the eye ago... You only knew about your little town. You didn't have any idea what was going on in the next state, let alone in freaking China. Well, and given even if the horrible cru- things were going on in China, you weren't
2: watching videos of them. Absolutely true. And given the cruelty of humankind, the only cruelty you'd be subjected to is that which was immediately around you. And something can be done about that, generally speaking, um, as opposed to all the cruelty of anybody you come in contact with online. Uh, the Internet, oh, uh, da, 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 da. social media places in every teen's pocket a quantified battle royale for scarce popularity that can displace hours of sleep and make many teens, especially girls, feel worse about their body and their life. Mm. Amplify these existing trends with a global pandemic and an unprecedented period of social isolation. And suddenly the remarkable rise of teenage sadness doesn't feel all that mysterious, does it? Well, it, it really hasn't ever to, to us. As we've been talking about this stuff for quite some time. And then to get back to the discussion uh, yesterday during hour two of the show, and if you missed it, it's some incredibly powerful stuff. Transgender people. Uh, gay people uh all sorts of sane people saying hey this this uh, trend of teens committing to trans uh, changing their gender gender surgery you know the sex change surgery uh, hormone blockers hormones kids making this decision is terrible it's awful it's indefensible even the washington post published an, a, an editorial saying that so it's time to be open and discuss that stuff anyway you add to what we've already described from this Derek Thompson piece. You add to that all of the activists, all the extremists, the uh, the the radicals who are trying to get inside kids' heads with critical race theory, queer theory, all of that stuff. And man, it is just a stew of 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 stuff kids should not be dealing with piped into their bedrooms or onto their smartphones all day long at a time when they're increasingly isolated and being bubble-wrapped by their parents. In some cases, uh, gosh, what, 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 is there anything that can break this cycle?
0: I don't know. I know I've done more of it than I ever thought I would do, and I'm not happy about it. Just It's weird, the momentum of society. Um, Got to keep in mind that all the people that invented this stuff won't allow their kids to do it because they right. know how dangerous it is and how bad it is for them.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And But then parents are saying, I hear you. I hear you, folks. The psychic connection. My kid is addicted to this stuff, mm. to the shots of adrenaline, to the new inputs, to the TikTok, to the whatever,
0: well, the best, Instagram. Uh, uh, one thing I know about addictions, one of the best ways to avoid uh, being addicted to something is don't ever start. So if I can keep my kids from ever starting on that stuff. I haven't so far,
2: and and if you already have to recognize that you are an addict and need to do something about it, you know, I I have uh, that that stupid pathetic. I am ashamed of it. That shot of adrenaline you get, something new, something new, something new. Look, something new. There is a text. Wonder who it is. Let me check
0: email. Let me check the news feed. It's just it's turned us into crack monkeys. Maybe I'm fortunate in the last year has been so crappy. Pretty much every text or email I get is bad news. So I've kind of like been conditioned like a monkey in a cage to cringe whenever I hear the ding of a text. Oh, no. So, because wow. it's always
2: bad news. So so I'm like a crack monkey who's like now just a complete crackhead. You were the monkey that, I don't know, got jabbed or yeah. something
0: yeah. when you were- Wow, wow! Any texts or emails are oh no. Now what? <laughs> that is interesting.
2: You know, maybe we can work in this story as well. Guy on a Southwest Airlines flight from Seattle to Phoenix, pleasuring himself. Oh, wait, wait, wait! Pleasuring himself twice. I mean, I'm sorry. Did I say twice? Three. To- oh, three times. Please, you're an amateur. Four times. Four
0: times between Seattle and Phoenix. Who was doing the counting, or did he offer up that information? (laughs) Is there somebody nearby saying, and that's two? Honey, keep track, that's two. The poor gal sitting next to him. Oh, jeez. Now,
2: one might ask the question. I'm not saying you should, but you might
0: ask the question. After the first time. I wouldn't sit through one, but the fact that you went (laughs) ahead and said, you know what? damage he's, is done surely he's done
2: now he's masturbated once i can enjoy the flight to beautiful phoenix in peace wait a minute what a, again how long Four a flight times. was this that's well, pretty seattle impressive to phoenix, uh, F- seattle to phoenix is barely two hours aside from being a degenerate
0: that's pretty impressive
2: y- y- certain details are not clear to me and i'm not going to go any further than that right um to what extent did he, she, uh,
0: did yeah, she? Did she Did she go to the flight attendant or anything or ask to switch seats? Can I switch seats? This guy's on his fourth round of masturbation. <laughs> well, that's what she said, evidently. You'd think after one, you'd be pretty insistent. And I feel like I need a free Dr. Pepper because I had to sit next to a guy who pulled the hat track and then went for another.
2: Yeah, and the whole can, by the way, please. Uh, yeah, evidently, she didn't complain until he fell asleep. And who can blame him? <laughs>